we're seeing that these same technologies are enabling new interfaces, right? I referred to one in terms of voice, but the idea that a camera can look at a room or look at a user and understand what it is they're doing with nonverbal communication, so gestures, waving their hands, what they're doing with verbal communication or the two combined, so pointing at a light and saying, turn that light on, is now possible through computer vision, right? So the interface doesn't have to be the direct mouse and keyboard for the collecting of context. And so this means that we are now transitioning into the next pattern of computing, which is gonna be far more ubiquitous. So everything we just finished disembodying is getting a new embodiment. Everything we just took from a desktop pattern to a handhold mobile pattern is about to get a wearable mobile pattern. I feel like my next 20 years are going to be just as exciting as the first 20 years. Hey everyone, welcome to Brains Behind AI, the show where we meet the innovators, entrepreneurs, and the real brains behind some of the most successful AI startups. We ask them about their journey from coming up with the idea to finding the product market fit. And from their experience, draw a set of principles that we can take away to ours. This is your host, Ari. Thank you for spending time with us. And now, let the show begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of Brains Behind AI. This is your host, Ari Yukobi. And we're going to take a different turn on this episode. Instead of focusing on AI technology, we're actually going to focus on design of human-centered AI systems. And we're speaking with the futurist, Jared Ficklin. Jared is a designer and a technologist with 20 plus years of experience in creating products and visions for major companies. An innovator by nature, Jared has passion for unique interaction models, especially those involving interesting inputs and outputs like touch, voice, gesture, sensing, and projection. All of those apply in AI in some form and shape. So we'll talk about that with Jared. Jared is a founding partner and the chief creative technologist at Argo Design. Prior to Argo, Jared was with Frog Design, where he was named one of the four Frog Fellows. Jared, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Jared, before we dive into the, the AI aspects of design, let's take a minute to learn about your background. How did you dabble into the world of design? Oh, you know, my path to design was an interesting one. I thought I was getting to be a professional musician. And that led me to years in school um, studying music and realizing that I wasn't at Juilliard. I was at, you know, New Mexico State University, <laughs> that they were secretly just training to be a high school music teacher. And so I became disillusioned with that, started a band, toured the country for a while. And eventually, after studying some philosophy and psychology, it's like, I got to get out of school. And I studied marketing. And when I was getting a degree in marketing, largely because I realized I could get it in two semesters with all the credits I had saved up, I realized that my other hobby, which started when I was eight years old, when my dad got us an Atari 800 for the family and a subscription to Basic Magazine, intersected with the world of creativity applied to business. And that was my computer skills that I had kept up through all those years were very applicable in this new world of the World Wide Web. And that's when it all started. I became, I worked for a shop called Interactive Services Incorporated, where I was kind of a generalist. I wrote 
CD-ROMs, if anyone remembers that, <laughs> in Flash and Director. I wrote websites. I did VB script backends, like really fun stuff. And then a friend of mine who worked with me there had moved to Austin. And we had played in our band in Austin a couple times. He's like, hey, you know what? They're paying VB script developers out here. I'm like, what? And he gave me that number. I was like, oh, I'm moving to Austin. <laughs> I got to Austin and I didn't know where I was, you know, I, I freelanced for a little bit and I picked up this job at this place called Frog, Frog Design. And it wasn't like an ad agency at all. It was a really kind of a different place. And I really didn't understand who they were because I had gone through a marketing school. I knew who BBDO and all the big ad agencies were, but I didn't know who design firms were. And I asked my friend, should I work at Frog? And he's like, yeah, they throw great parties. And the rest is, as they say, is history. I took the job. I worked there for 14 years. I feel like I had four different careers there. And that's really where I got my education in product design. And then eventually had the opportunity to leave Frog and begin Argo Design, found Argo Design with, with Mark Ralston, Mark Gogger, and Kevin McDonald, and take it even further from there. So that was my route into the world of, of product design. It was just an enthusiasm for technology that found a home in the right moment when my curiosity and pursuit of creativity landed me in the world of, of design and products. Yeah, and, and such a sort of a perfect timing because what I remember back in the day, the technology used to be the core focus and not design. But what I've seen over the course of last, I would say, 20 years, there's this huge shift towards design you can have the best of the technology, but if the design's not there, you're going to miss the mark. You're not going to get the adoption. Yeah, it was a beautiful time to pick up the world of product design. As Hartmut Esslinger, founder of Frog, would say, form follows emotion. That was a huge movement starting in the 60s and was being applied to technology in the day. And that, you know, it was... You know, starting around 2000, it wasn't enough to just have a website. It needed to have an experience behind it. You know, the, the practice of user experience was beginning, delighting the user. You know, Apple grew into what it is now on the basics of, basis of these principles, right? But at the same time, everything needed a new interface. And so from around 2000 to 2020, really, we were just redesigning everything. The way washing machines work, they had been push, pull out, twist, push in for like, 60 years and now they had touch screens. How should that work? What should happen when you press that button? And I fell into a place where I would be able to use a prince prop kind of a design technique of user experience simulation to answer those questions quickly. And so now where we're at now, we're we're now going to a second. So everything was disembodied in the first phase. It needed a digital form of itself. And now it's being re-embodied. Right now, we now machine learning and AI give us enough context and enough um, skills that it's enabling two really big things. One is we have enough context to not need so much user interface to understand what the user is attempting to do with the device. And this is allowing individual features to show up as single function devices. Now, another enable that is the you know, costs of parts are coming down. Right. And the convention and knowledge of the user is converging on this point where capability. Right. So we're, we're seeing this on the consumer side, a wide deployment of single function computers enabled by machine learning. OK, you couldn't talk to an Amazon Echo 
until machine learning had reached a point to make natural language computing possible to understand what the user is saying. You now we can now have like pet feeders with a camera that due to, you know, GAN type training can recognize your cat as your cat and not a raccoon and therefore only dispense food for your cat, right? And all of that's at a low enough cost that people can buy it for a hundred bucks off of Amazon and put it in their home. On the other side, we're seeing that these same technologies are enabling new interfaces, right? I referred to one in terms of voice, but the idea that a camera can look at a room or look at a user and understand what it is they're doing with nonverbal communication, so gestures, waving their hands, what they're doing with verbal communication, or the two combined, so pointing at a light and saying, turn that light on, is now possible through computer vision, right? So the interface doesn't have to be the direct mouse and keyboard for the collecting of context. And so this means that we are now transitioning into the next pattern of computing, which can be far more ubiquitous. So everything we just finished disembodying is getting a new embodiment. Everything we just took from a desktop pattern to a handhold mobile pattern is about to get a wearable mobile pattern. I feel like my next 20 years are going to be just as exciting as the first 20 years. <laughs> yeah, because now we're incorporating not just we're not on a screen. We're almost going in three dimension where, as you mentioned, someone can point eye at the light and say, turn this light on or turn that light off. So there is this hand movement gesture going into and feeding what that experience looks like. For the I would even say a fifth dimension, right? So you, you realize that, you know, from 3D, like from interfacing through screens with the input output of mouse keyboard and the output of the screen itself, touch has come forward. We then added on placefulness, right? So we're at, that's what we're doing right now. The geography around you and the respect of what the user is doing in space combines to something that Mark Ralston would call placefulness that we talk about a lot. And then there's a 5D, and that's data, right? There is now enough data accumulated on every user. And this, was, this has been happening for a while, but it wasn't really noticed because there wasn't much we could do with that data. For a while, it was too expensive to store. Then it became cheap enough to store, right? Then it was too expensive to process. Then it became we could process it algorithmically. It wasn't generating much, but now with machine learning and AI, we actually can bring insights out of this data that are meaningful, right? So you are slowly developing what we would call a meta right? There's a version of you that lives in the cloud in data that can is very quickly getting to a point where it shares your DNA, like we really know it's you, but it's also beginning to predict your behavior. Like chances are we know what app you're about to reach for or what light you're about to turn on. And then the last part is actually beginning to act in agency. You know, one of the hottest products out in um, the consumer space of AI right now is personal assistance and the features of, you know, hyper-personalization, right? And this is your meta-me actually taking care of tasks for you and suggesting just the end result or anticipating context so that we can present you the right UI. So what used to take seven clicks of like, let's give a pedantic example, right? Yelp is an application for recommending a place to eat. And that application, if you go into it, has a lot of UI UX that designers have developed over the last 20 years for establishing context. It has tabs. 
It has a search field. It has filters. It has scrolling lists of hierarchical results that have cards in them that give you a detailed screen. And all of those UI UX pieces exist to gather context so that me and the user can tell it what type of food I want, when I'm planning on eating it, and so they can give me search results and ultimately get down to, oh, I want this restaurant, book a reservation or call the restaurant or get directions and go there, right? Well, if the meta me and AI can establish those first four steps and anticipate that actually what you want is pizza, you want to meet your friend John there, he doesn't like sushi, right? You could open up Yelp and instead of getting all that UI UX, Yelp could just present you with a, hey, for dinner, meet John at home slice at 6 p.m right? So much user interface that can be removed by this, the, the notion that AI and the meta me establishing context. And then the idea that you need an app to do that goes away. It could just be something that's whispered in your ear, or it could be an avatar that tells it to you, or it could be something that flashes up in, into a heads up display. You may not need all the touch and the swipe and the tap to negotiate this type of computing. And so I'm excited about this future. A lot of people speak about the future of AI and all they focus on is like the moment that sentience is, re is, is reached. And I, I really don't. And I think that moment's actually really far afield, farther than the press or science fiction or Hollywood ha would have us to believe. What's, what I'm excited about is this notion of ubiquitous uh, patterns of computing that serve humanity. And one feature at a time, which is what AI is actually really good at, is deploying individual features. You know, I'll, I can give you my, my Beagle analogy in a moment. But it leads to like the next pattern of computing. And that's what excites me is that, that we can take the productivity, entertainment, and socialization, we get out of our digital lifestyle, break it free from the screens, and actually have it to be more of an amplifying force, a companion, as opposed to this kind of tunnel that sucks us in and removes us from humanity via process of over-immersion. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And it's great that you're already working into it. As you design these applications, are there any design principles at play that you're thinking to or that are important as you look at the design from, from those dimensions that we're evaluating? Any best practices and principles at play here? We're not there yet, but I will answer your question in a slightly different way. There are processes and certain design philosophies that help here. And the reason I say we're not there yet is because all of this is so new that there isn't really convention to draw from, like creating a, a web app or an iOS app or you know a garden variety B2B tooling. And I call this the unique place. It's when a technology is sufficiently new enough, the deployment is unique, and the user lacks familiarity. That Venn diagram creates a little place on the map that I, I call the unique place. And in that place, it's really hard to do design research or to use convention. Like I can go and ask people, how would you use AI in the car? They don't know. They're not familiar enough with what AI is capable of. There's no patterns or conventions for them to draw from in the past, right? And in Western cultures in particular, what they will do then is just make something up. <laughs> so validating what they really want to do is a practice of either building a prototype and watching them use it so you can deduce what would you know, delight or create productivity or reduce friction. 
or you have to get presumptive. You have to get presumptive and make a best guess at it and then quickly put it in a form where you can put it in front of users. And that's what user ex experience simulation does. And this is how our design practice, so like we, Cognitive Scale is our oldest client and they were trying to deploy a cloud-based AI infrastructure that would help large organizations deploy AI features. It really democratizes AI, which was like, you know, largely trapped in a, in a kind of a services solution model that was held up in terms of productivity and timeline by the limited number of AI engineers or data specialists, right? A financial company, for instance, may have 20,000 application developers and 200 of them are capable AI specialists, right? So you're getting like 18 month lead times to deploy very simple features, right? And so what they did was like, you know, let's create a cloud architecture. Kind of scales Manoj Saxona and Matt Sanchez, who spun out of IBM Watson and, and, and founded this. It's a very interesting startup that we've been working with for eight years now. And, you know, they very quickly realized that they needed one, an architecture that, you know, honored the truths of computing, object orientation, right? And then they need an interface where a regular developer could orchestrate these kind of like skills that different models represented into an agent that could provide a feature or an insight to a traditional solution, right? Where's the interface for that? <laughs> you know, we couldn't just go back to Salesforce or Adobe or something and go like, oh, okay, here's a great... AI interface. No, we really had to do a lot of design research, interview with the users. We had to understand the problem as deeply as we could. And honestly, most of the time I'm in the room with Matt and Manoj, I feel like a, a, a toddler, right? And then we actually had to just build things and bring them to users. One of the insights we took out of that is orchestration of AI is not a linear process. Therefore, it does not look like orchestration of things like network traffic, right? Or a a closed loop algorithm, right? A recommendation engine, for instance, is using simple algorithms. Uh, and so the interface couldn't look like it was a straight line. The interface needed to represent the different data transformations that were taking place, right? And the nodes that, that connected them, right? And once we really established that metaphor, we made a few versions of it, brought it to a lot of developers, cycled through their input and ultimately launched an interface that, that took a process that was taking weeks, if not months, of just walking code, made it visual to the point where an architect, a data science, a business owner could understand the flow of the data and orchestrating it you know, came down to a matter of hours or days, right? So a huge productivity builder through the user experience and the design. But it had to be presumptive and then rapidly tested because there was no convention or best practices to draw on. So that is the best practice that I would give. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Now, one of the topics that are pretty close to my heart is the responsible AI. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to get your perspective on if you have any thoughts on designing for responsible AI. It's really important and it's a really hot topic right now. And Argo is part of Global.ai, which as is Cognitive Scale and other large companies. This is a consortium that's building essentially what's like a lead certification for AI solutions, right? So it's a series of best practices, but also a, a consulting way for, for you to look at anything from as small as a model to the way the model is used in code and grade it for how responsibly it's being deployed. There's been some big hiccups in the deployment of AI 
around this issue where either unethical, illegal, or uh, immoral behavior has taken place, you know, accidentally. And it's really important to have a, a transparency, a provenance to your your data and your transformations and kind of a pedigree. And so we work with Cognitive Scale to also at the same time build a series of products that help you monitor your AI. Now, the core of this is not just the big ethical stuff. And that is important. It is important to comply with government regulations that exist around like recommending a mortgage, for instance. It's important to behave ethically. So to not let a AI solution perpetuate a racial injustice, for instance, right? But it's also important to know that it's working. And so for those who are suspicious that this industry shouldn't monitor itself, I can tell you that there is a built-in motivation and that it's expensive to deploy AI. And the same tools that tell you that it's giving you a return on your investment are the same uh, processes and procedures that can tell you if it's acting ethically. And so there's a huge motivation to build this layer on top of AI right now that can watch the AI and make sure that it's performing both to the business goals, the regulatory goals, and the ethical human goals. And not ironically, often it involves AI watching AI, strangely enough, which also sounds like the wolf guarding the hen house. But Stick with me. I'll give you a simple example, right? So for instance, in recommending a mortgage, sometimes it's really important to have randomized sets of data, right? Even better is like crossing cargo into Canada, for instance, and deciding which packages need to be inspected requires randomization. It's part of the law that it can only be done random, right? And so you can actually write a little model that looks at a data set and just grades it you know, what does a Randall set and it learns what a random sample looks like. And so all that piece of AI does is look at which shipments have been selected for the AI to, to grade for extra inspection. And it's not cognizant or aware of any of the, is it get inspected or not? All it's doing is looking at that and saying, does that look random? And if it doesn't look random, it throws a flag right? And that flag gets appended to the data. So if you come back later and go like, oh, which were the ones that were, you know, because what could cause this is model drift. Like, you know, let's say the population, you know, all of a sudden there's a boom in, in Western Africa and a lot more shipments are coming from there and it skews, skews the data, right? We need to retrain the model now, right? And so it can catch things like that. And so there's now a whole reporting interface called Pulse, where business owners can, in a low-code environment, build up this kind of monitoring and goals and, and the kind of flags and alerts they want thrown so that they know when it's going off the rails, so to speak, can catch it and make it perform better. It's super important to do this right now. Even before we get to the, like, the three laws of robotics and assuring that AI doesn't become HAL or we all end up in the matrix, we just need to know that it's working and it's working well in service of humanity and the standards we've set for ourselves. And so the work is going on there and it's really interesting, fascinating work. And, it, and I think part of the interesting place design has a voice here is to take it out of the hands of the, of the engineers to have to do both and give it into the hands of, of more of the business and subject matter experts that, that have more time and knowledge to to do this. Not that the engineers are not concerned with it. They definitely are, but they are wearing a lot of hats already and having 
interfaces that business managers can use. And this is all on the tooling side. On the interface side, I think something we need to do a lot better is let users know when machine learning is being used to analyze their data. I think also we need to do a lot better with how we guard their data, their privacy, and their features. We're quickly getting to a point where data has value and we transact in it, right? But right now we transact in this notion that data is a right, and therefore we have this security model. And as a right, what happens is you tell Facebook, Facebook says, can I look, have, can I, will you um, give up your right to privacy so I can look at your data? And that's binary. So you say yes, so they go like, ha, 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 we have all your data, now we own it. <laughs> it really should be more like currency, right? With money, we don't have a right to money, right? And as such, money is a lot more fluid. We have a language around it, and we have a system of contracts that govern. If I give you this money, and it's a loan, it's expected that you give it back to me by a certain date. If I spot you a 20, well, you pay me, you, it's expected that you'll give me 20 back at some point, but it's not required, right? If I give you a 20, I'm not expecting back. We have a whole language around these transactions, and we're going to need a similar language around the transaction of data. So I could actually say, you can use my likeness in order to help me find my jacket, right? Let's say I was out shopping and I left my jacket in a store, right? We have machine learning is now capable enough and the data stores are there that it could go through all the closed camera circuit TV feeds, track me by my facial recognition through all the points, and eventually do, through object recognition, rec re recognize the moment that I left my jacket in the gap, right? <laughs> right? Right now, if you were to write that app, the model is give me right to your privacy. It then takes my facial recognition. It sends to a bunch of Russian hackers, and they begin building a database on all my activities to sell to someone else. That's garbage. What it should be is a contract that goes like, I will let you use my likeness in order to find my jacket. As soon as you find my jacket, you will throw my likeness away and I'll give you $2. <laughs> right? And, you know, I call that privacy as a virtue. We need to start treating privacy as a virtue rather than as a right so that we can begin exchanging it like money and recognizing the value of the data that we're generating and participate in this data marketplace going forward. Yeah, no, that is a very interesting concept. And I'm hoping that uh, blockchain at some point can, can take some of that transaction, as transactional aspects of privacy management and bring it to bring it in a way where it's easy to manage and track and connect the dots, but I think we're still far from from that it's point. An, yeah. It's an important enabling technology because it allows us to create a database system that can be transparent without jeopardy of people destroying it, right? That's the best feature of it, right? Right now, people get too much power over the data if they own the database because it's fragile. It needs to be encrypted and it needs to be kept in that store where only the sysadmin can or the data scientist can query it and get it back. You know, blockchains give us an opportunity to have more syndicated data sets as well, which is great for AI, right? So that we're all training against the same gold standards so we get all get the best good result. I really do think we're migrating to the point. I think some companies are ready, like even Apple, are, they're probably ready to just be like, you know what? We like to give away this data management. <laughs> you know, we'd love to just query the database, do our work, but we're tired of being the holders and protectors of the of your data. You should be involved in that. In the same way that the financial systems are decoupled 
from a lot of the features of which we use money to um, obtain. Right, right. Just as sort of the trading world from the banking and, and other sides of the finance. That's a really good analogy. Jared, question for you is, say industry leaders that are building the next generation applications and are thinking about the design and thinking how important it is, what is the advice you would give them? How can they ensure success when it comes to product design for the new age applications? Yeah, I think they need to understand that we're still at a system level, that they need to think about this as a system, not as an individual feature, right? And therefore, they, you know, design can lead them down a primrose path pretty easily because we can actually imagine way far out ahead of what is capable and also what is going to generate value. I can give you a simple example. I can design a one-screen shopping app for clothing that when you rep- open it up, it recommends the perfect shirt for you, right? All machine learning based, right? That'd be really cool. Anytime you need a shirt, you open it up, you tell the app, hey, I'm headed to dinner at this restaurant. It goes like, here's a shirt. The one in your, if you don't have it in your closet, I can ship it to you tomorrow. There's an amazing app for Uh, machine learning to enable. It's just not possible yet. (laughs) Right. And it's not practical yet. Right. Because it ignores the gold standard data set necessary to make that recommendation. It's overconfident on the success of the recommendation. It's under, uh, it's not acknowledging what happens to the user's mindset when a recommendation like that is wrong. They get very upset with you. And it would be very expensive to put a huge back end to get together to solve all those problems, right? And so I think that's something that to be very aware of that this is system level design, and you really need to start with the capabilities of the organization, the changes that they're going to make on their back end, how this data is going to thread into their existing workflow processes, and then the features start to manifest themselves, right? And you really need to work with people who are capable of knowing those things. Otherwise, we get, you know, you're going to get a lot of day, of day of glass type design. I say that as in everyone is aware of the Corning Day and Glass video that, you know, came out about 15 years ago, right? And it shows an amazing portion of the world. And they didn't ever commission that to be designed. You know, the people who made that did their job design job right it was a provocation on the future right but 15 years later we're still trying to achieve a lot of the stuff that's in there when you get down to actual design you want to be designing what is possible and adds value in the in the right sense so that's my first piece of advice think of this as system levels design for the for the moment and also this might be a good time for the beagle metaphor you do have to think a little more discreetly right now ai is not sentient yet it's very good at doing very discrete operations that add insight values at kind of like an insight or a touch point level, which can Im- improve things, right? So AI is like, uh, for those who are not deeply into it, and that, uh, you know, we have to teach this to a lot of designers, AI is like squirrels right now. Squirrels are not thought of as intelligent. They're not thought of as sentient. They're not thought of as more intelligent than people. But a squirrel can bury 10,000 nuts around a tree and remember the location of every nut. 
So when it comes to burying nuts, squirrels are actually much more intelligent than humans. Humans cannot pull this off. <laughs> right? And so in that same way, AI can be a squirrel. An AI can remember the location of 10,000 10, nuts, maybe even deduce the location with enough data of 10,000 nuts, right? And so AI doesn't yet deploy as an intelligent. It deploys as a lot of different squirrels that have to be orchestrated in order to manifest an insight, right? General intelligence is very hard and doesn't exist yet. So you have to think about it this way. You have to think about it as a bunch of beagles, right? The beagle is trained to sniff out a specific substance, right? And if the beagle over time, if the training is not respected correctly, eventually it might get confused and begin stiffing out popcorn instead of gunpowder, right? Now you don't have a bomb stiffing dog anymore, right? That's an example of model drift, right? And how a model works, right? You have these little beagles that you have trained to do specific things. You need to monitor them and make sure that they are, you know, acting correctly over time. You know, they have a similar intelligence to the squirrel. So I think that's a second kind of advice. You have to kind of think in this matter in order to... Now, we're at the cusp of something new. AI is now able to be orchestrated into campaigns, which is a really interesting new area. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. That's actually a very good analogy. I'll definitely use it. Now, my last question for you is around and for people that are aspiring to be human-centered design. Your journey into human and part of design has been, it seems like, very serendipitous. I would like to understand now that you have these years and years of experience being in product design, what advice would you give to, to the aspiring designers that want to design the next generation applications that want to get started and, and maybe at, at someday get to work on things that you're working on? Absolutely. I would let them know that their career and career arc is not too dissimilar from that of a jazz musician. Okay. And this is what I mean by that. It's that there's going to be a portion in the beginning of the, your career that you really should focus on the mastery of tools. Okay. A jazz musician knows their instruments that they've chosen. I played saxophone, so I knew saxophone, clarinet, flute, kind of okay with piano. But those three I needed to know so well that I didn't have to think about the technique of playing them. That became automatic and practiced, right? So Photoshop, you know, a SketchUp, like whatever your chosen tool is, there's a portion of your career that's really about the mastery of that tool set. You'll be working with others that, uh, you know, you'll be applying your creativity, your taste, and your talent. Then they're, they're, now you could begin playing jazz, right? Now jazz is this emotional, creative expression, but it's synergistic. It's not just you playing what you want, right? A real jazz musician is in the club with an audience, and this is a moment of synergy, right? There's a resonant with, with resonance with who is listening, with what the other portions, we could call the other players criteria and scope, right? So you need to practice that too. You got to get out there and gig, right? And what that means in terms of design is portfolio is everything. 
the way to become user centered is to work with users on real products that go into the market, right? There's no better practice than that. There's no better practice for a jazz musician than being in the club and playing a live show. So better practice for a designer than actually working on a project that is going to a customer, right? That's a second phase of their career. And then as they've accumulated those two experiences, they're suddenly going to find this moment where they have a critical mass and they're going to kind of flip over to the other side to be able to start projecting the future or understanding how to impact process or attract the right kind of clients, right? And so during that phase, put out the work that you want to do and that's the work that will come to you. At Argo, we believe that design should be done for a meaningful difference. It's one of our core principles. Meaningful could be defined a lot of ways, right? It could be for society. It could be to reach the goals of the customer. But it's really important that that design makes a meaningful difference for us. And the second is that it has a certain level of quality to it that we really enforce with a collegiate in-house standard driven by our design leadership at the company, right? And as such, we put a lot of product in the market and really enjoy that, you know? So that, that's my advice is like, you can focus on schooling, you can focus on where you work, but actually those three things can be done anywhere you are. I guess I'll add this last thing. And that's my definition of what design is to truly understand what it is, you know? It's not picking the perfect color of blue, right? It's not the blue, it's the picking. Right? Design is nothing more than accumulation of decisions. Okay, Those decisions deal with aesthetics, materials, experience, how it deploys, right? the strategy and the value that it creates. Right? As designers, it's our job to facilitate people in making those decisions, but then also recording them and giving them an artifact that helps them deploy those decisions. That is the art of this design, right? And so as such, you really have to live at that level where they're not your decisions, they're decisions done by proxy. You have to immerse yourself and own the problem. You have to connect with the user and then you have to be able to communicate it with your artifacts. This is why Keynote and PowerPoint are still so big in the design world. Because in the end, you have to have the story of the decisions relayed to the people who are actually going to have to deploy those decisions. And that gets very complicated as well. But that's ultimately what design is. It's this accumulation and recording of a series of decisions about how a a feature, a product, an experience, a color, you know, deploy out to the public. So think of it that way. There's a lot of artistry and talent involved. There's a lot of aesthetics and taste involved. But those are all the things that that build to what design really is the accumulation of, of, of really good decisions. You know, and I tell my son, I like, there's, I'm like, I love how smart you are, but there's three kinds of smarts. There's, um, it'd be nice for AI to know this too, by the way, <laughs> there's three kinds of smart. One, you know, the answer. Great. You know, the right answer. The second is that you can communicate that answer to the, in a way that someone else understands the right answer. And the third one is that you can communicate it to someone else in a way that they will accept that answer. 
you have to have all three forms of intelligence as a designer and put them in practice. Right now, AI is missing uh, a lot of the second two and design has to be that voice for them still. And it, it actually probably will be the role of humanity for some time to come. AI is really not a threat to us unless we let it be. Yeah, those are perfect words to end this with. Thank you, Jared. Thank you for taking the time. Really, really appreciate it. This was super informational. Thank you. I mean, you gave me a lot of time to talk <laughs> and I appreciate that. And I'll close with, with, this is a much higher thought, but you know, I really believe the purpose of humanity is to create as much love and intellect for the user universe as possible. It's a great disposition to bring to your life and to your design. And in doing so, I think we will find a place to protect both the earth, perpetuate humanity, and build technology that lives in service of humanity. Love it. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. If you like what you heard and are interested in more, visit us online at brainsbehind.ai and sign up for my monthly AI startup tracker. That's where I cut through the noise and bring you AI startups that are making tangible progress. Till next time, go out, be the brains behind AI.